So I'm hoping this one here, that when you want to give up at whatever task you have at hand, you, you say you're ready to throw in the towel. Uh, and this is, uh, I think it's a boxing slogan for how the losing opponent would acknowledge their defeat. They would throw the towel into the ring. There are many things in life that beat us down and overwhelm us and make us ready to throw in the towel. But in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16, God says that Christians are not to throw in the towel in marriage. Whatever the reason for your difficulties in marriage, you cannot flippantly give up and walk away. In these verses before us, Paul exhorts married Christians to remain married, whether they are married to another Christian since they have made a a fundamental love commitment and, and there is nothing wrong with or lesser about being married, and they have recently converted, but their spouse remains an unbeliever, since they too have made that same fundamental love commitment, and God may still work through that marriage to save the unbelieving person. Now, I think one thing we have to keep in mind right now, because as soon as we read this passage, there's probably ten different questions that People start to ask, at least the, the usual suspects. And we have to remember that as we considered the last time we were in this chapter, the, the Corinthians' problem was a desire to dissolve all of their marriages. So in verses 1 to 9, Paul had responded that marriage and singleness are both good and that believers should remain married or single if they are gifted to remain single. And so then we come to these six verses, 10 to 16. Paul affirmed that Christians should be people who are faithful in their existing marriages. Since they had thought perhaps they should end all of their marriages, the problem is almost the opposite of modern questions seeking to find all the exceptions that give them permission for divorce and remarriage. So the concern of the text is in some ways the opposite of what we tend to ask it in the modern era, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have answers. And so we turn to consider it. The main point is that Christians should be steadfast in our marriages because Christ is steadfast with us. Christians should be steadfast in their marriages because Christ is steadfast with us. And we're going to think about this in three points, principles, problems, and promises. So first, principles. Okay, so there's a lot here. (laughs) The way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to list four bullet point principles from this passage about how Christians should remain steadfast in marriage on their part. So, four principles. I know that this isn't the most elegant way of doing this, but it seemed more direct than keeping us here for two hours. Now, before you... I'm just going to head this off. Don't come up to me and say afterwards, we're still waiting for an elegant sermon anyway, because I know that's coming. So, so first principle. Christians should not divorce other Christians. 
Christians should not divorce other Christians. So, verses 10 and 11 is where we're going. Paul continued his discussion from priest verses about marriages between two Christians, addressing first the wives, but then the husbands with the same instruction. He already stated earlier in this chapter that in whatever marital status believers find themselves, it is good. That's good. And they should not feel they need to change it just because they've become Christians. Especially, especially when two Christians are married, they should do everything they can to avoid divorce. And we see that Paul took this teaching directly from Jesus' earthly ministry. So that's what he means when he says, not I, but the Lord. So, for example, we find Jesus' teachings in Matthew 19. So Paul is drawing on things that he know Jesus said. Now the, the ideal principle here, then, is that Christians be steadfast in marriage. They don't give up. They don't turn away. They don't walk out. Verse 11, though, addresses what Christians should do in the situation when separation does happen. So so the two options presented here, if a Christian left in in the situation where a Christian leaves another Christian, are to remain single or to reconcile to your spouse. Now we can add some additional information from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, specifically verse 9, to which Paul appealed. In the case of adultery, divorce is permitted, and the person who is the victim of adultery can, may, remarry. Now, why does that exception exist? And the reason is because under the Old Covenant, so in Leviticus 20, verse 10, God imposed the death penalty for adulterers which even though that does not still stand, should tell you how seriously he takes this. And although the church certainly does not physically execute anyone, we can consider that an adulterer would have been put to death. Death ends a marriage, and the other person is therefore free to marry. So, Though the principle is Christians should not divorce other Christians. Second principle. Second principle. Christians who convert after they married should not divorce the unbelieving spouse. Christians who convert after they married should not divorce the unbelieving spouse. So here we go to verses 12 and 13. And Paul shifted attention from from couples where both partners were Christians to couples where one person is a Christian and the other isn't. So in this instance, he wrote, I, not the Lord, in contrast to the, not I, but the Lord, to indicate that Jesus didn't address this particular issue during his earthly ministry. And so, and so here... We have the Holy Spirit inspiring new insights about 
these issues that weren't addressed during Jesus' time on earth. Now, the, the principle in these mixed marriages is that the Christian cannot initiate divorce, should not, especially not just because the other spouse hasn't become a believer. So Paul clearly said, so let's, let's clarify, Paul clearly said in 2 Corinthians 6 that a believer should not get married, should not be in a relationship with an unbeliever. So this passage is not licensed to have relationships with non-Christians if you're a professing believer. But he specifically affirms here that if you are married, if you have converted, and your spouse has not, then you should remain married. You should continue, if, if they agree, if they consent to continue in this marriage. In this case, Christians should fully continue in their marriage, not neglecting or reconsidering any of their marriage vows, responsibilities, or affections, but remaining faithful to their partner. So second principle is Christians should not, after they have married, should not divorce an unbelieving spouse. Third principle, a believer, one believer, makes their whole family holy. One believer makes their whole family holy. So, okay, at this point we're kind of asking this thanks Paul for explaining this, but can you give me a reason for that one? And he does. Verse 14 defends why Christians aren't the people who initiate divorce if they've converted but their spouse has not. And the reason is that one believer in the family in some way makes the whole family holy. Now, here's the thing. The most interesting bit of this argument uh, is that Paul defended the point that the unbelieving spouse is somehow holy by appealing to the unquestioned fact that a believer's children are certainly holy. Right? Because he, he says, otherwise, if it weren't the case that your spouse is holy somehow, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is something that they wouldn't object to it, they are holy. How do we understand that? Right. Where does that come from? So Galatians 3 and 4 shows us that our new covenant in Jesus Christ is intimately linked with God's covenant with Abraham, about which we read in Genesis 17. And Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 7.14 goes back to Genesis 7. Sorry, 17.7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God has promised in this foundational administration of the covenant of grace, that he will be God to us and to our children after us. God promised with an unbreakable oath 
to be God to us and to our children after us. And so God says that our children are holy, which doesn't mean that they are automatically converted, nor does it totally guarantee their eventual conversion, but it does mean that they are special to God and that God has promised to work in our families. And that is something upon which we can depend. Because God promised in this foundational administration of the one covenant of grace to be God to us and to our children, our children are part of our covenant community. So in the Old Testament, as we read, male children were marked in the covenant with circumcision. But God has not condensed but expanded the mark of covenant entrance so that every child of one believing parent is marked with baptism. The child is not made holy by baptism, but is baptized because he or she is holy. So this holiness, though, to, to bring us back to the discussion at stake in our passage, this, this holiness that is undoubtedly true of our children whom God includes in his covenant also transfers onto the unbelieving spouse because otherwise then the children would be holy. So Paul is after how Christians should then not divorce their unbelieving spouse because God considers that spouse set apart. And as we'll see here in a moment there's a good chance that God will work through the believer to save their spouse. So, uh, the reason, um, what was it? A believer makes their whole family holy. Fourth principle. There's a concession, but a hope. There is a concession, but a hope. So, Paul is writing to Christians, right? We know that this letter is for believers over whom he had authority and he had enjoined them not to initiate divorce. And the thing is, Paul knew that there was another person in these mixed marriages who was not under his authority as an apostle and who had not experienced the Holy Spirit's regenerating work to to rework their values and desires. And so being the ever-mindful pastor, Paul clarified how Christians should react if the unbeliever initiates a divorce. Now, religion in the ancient world and now is uh, in some ways politically loaded, right? Especially in its moral demands. That was the case then and it's the case now. And what happens is unbelievers then and now can react with disapproval, anger, even hatred if their spouse becomes a Christian. It happened then. It happens now. And Paul knew that this may lead to divorce. The Christian should not initiate this divorce, but if the unbeliever leaves them, 
then they should not feel at fault. The Westminster Confession, in chapter 24, paragraph 6. I always feel weird saying that because it sounds so clinical. Chapter 24, paragraph 6. But that's where it is, if you want to find it. Uh, it states that the two biblical grounds for divorce are adultery and willful desertion. So in these two instances, someone would be free from a marriage and permitted to remarry. Now, 1 Corinthians 7.15 explains for us where we get this category of willful desertion. That if believers are abandoned in a marriage, they are not enslaved. Which means that they are free from the marriage and they are not bound by verse 11's restriction to remain single or reconcile with that specific spouse. But on a better note, verse 16 says that the further reason that Christians should be steadfast even in these mixed marriages is because they don't know if God will work to save their unbelieving spouse. Now, scholars debate whether Paul assumed a, a yes or no answer to these questions, but, but the point is actually that we don't know. We don't know if we have converted and our spouse has not yet done so. We don't know. God may, in fact, work to save them. And so we should persevere in confidence that God may save our spouses. We labor in prayer and love and evangelism with the hope that God has already made this spouse somehow holy. And he may well do his saving work in them. As Charles Hodge commented on these verses, the gospel was not designed to break up families or separate husbands and wives, which means we should hope that God will actually work salvation through our families. So we've got these four principles in mind now, and we can turn to think about what are some of the problems. Second point problems. The principles, I I hope, in this text express the foundational guidelines, right, to to direct our thinking about Christian steadfastness in marriage, and it comes out of this passage very clearly that Christians should do everything they can not to be the ones who leave their spouse. We know that these ideals quickly get complicated. So what about in cases of abuse or or other seemingly insurmountable difficulties? What do we do? And we need to think about some of those problems, even if briefly, and I admit, really, I'm forthcoming, that specific situations have to be handled with pastoral wisdom. So... This is not, this doesn't answer every question for every situation. So, but we we can think, right, foundationally, verses 10 and 11 challenged Christians, charged Christians not to divorce each other. And their options, if they do, are to remain single or 
to reconcile with each other. Now, there are cases when home life makes remaining together untenable, like cases of massively damaging sin. And for those instances, Paul seemed to concede that someone may have to leave the other, but they should remain single or they should reconcile. But then this becomes complicated because if these are two Christians and the other person who is doing this massively damaging sin claims to be a Christian and and they remain unrepentant, church discipline is enacted. Which transfers these cases from between two Christians to between a believer and an unbeliever. Someone who's been excommunicated. And in that case, if the person who's been put out of the church, excommunicated, the unbeliever, if they initiate the divorce, then verse 15 seems to say the believer is freed from the marital bond. Now, on the other hand, if the believer initiated the divorce, even after an excommunication, it seems that they are still tied to the marital bond. Seems that. Best I can tell so far, seems they're still tied to the marital bond. That doesn't seem to change if the person whom the believer left remarries because the, del- the believer initiated this divorce. They did not willfully desert the believer, which does not make them an adulterer. Now, okay, right, we, we see already how messy these issues quickly become. And so admittedly, this discussion has laid only a starting point for on which pastoral wisdom has to build in concrete situations. But what's actually at stake here is, is not just these problems, these situational problems, But the further problem is our own heart. Because Jesus was clear that that God permitted, not required, but permitted divorce because of our heart's sinfulness. Whatever the case, sin is the clearest factor in divorce. And on top of that, however, I think it's I think it is, more pointedly, a problem with our hearts that as we start thinking about these issues, so often we do drift to finding how much permission we might have to divorce and drift to looking for those excuses that we might remarry if we divorced, which is a significant reason why we have to remember that the Corinthians were looking for excuses not to be married rather than asking questions about how often we can divorce and remarry. At rock bottom, this is unquestionable truth, God hates divorce. We don't have to qualify that. 
no, no matter what has happened, no matter whose sin it is, God hates divorce. It wrecks lives, families, children, even churches. And in no way is divorce good. It, it may be necessary, but it's still not good. We should not be content to search out ways to make it acceptable in our case or in our friends' cases. We should hope and pray foremost for repentance in all parties. We should not seek for all the ways that we can permissibly break a marriage and start another one, we should, we should long for God to restore and rebuild what we presently have. Paul was clear in verse 15 in this regard that Christians are called to peace. Christians should do their absolute best to be at peace in their marriage. In other words, whatever the situation, whether you're married to another Christian or you've converted and you're waiting for your spouse, hopefully, to become a Christian, whatever the case, no matter what, we should not be the problem. At the end of the day, you can't take responsibility for the other person. You can take responsibility for you. I should not be the problem. It does not matter if your spouse is a professing believer and totally awful, could be, you should not be the problem. Take responsibility and you answer the call to peace. Christians are called to peace. Now, that applies most directly to these cases of of willful desertion. I think... Sometimes what happens is people make life unbearable so that, for their spouse so that the spouse will initiate the divorce, leaving this awful person free from the marital bond. God called you to peace. Don't make things difficult. No matter what, be the best husband or wife you can be. Do not seek to drive other people away Because at the end of the day, the problems are all rooted in our sinfulness. Brings us to our third and final point, promises. So, So the text principles make clear that Christians should be steadfast in marriage and, and the problems show that the sin, our sin, is ultimately the cause of, of the problems. These issues are, are difficult and I am the first to say emotionally taxing to even just to discuss, even if they don't directly confront us personally. But the main question, right, if we're, if we're charged to be steadfast in our marriage, how, where do we find strength no matter our situation? Even if you're not married, 
steadfastness, where do we find strength? And the answer, of course, is in Jesus Christ, who is the perfectly faithful bridegroom to his tremendously imperfect bride, the church. He is the one to whom we look to see perfect love and undying commitment to his betrothed. So, maybe you've already made a mess of this. The marriage you have, or you're, and you're wondering where that leaves you. And there are certainly practical questions that have to be addressed. But the most important question, whether you've made a mess of this, or you're doing your best, whatever your situation, the answer is that if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it leaves you forgiven. Whether you have wrecked a marriage, whether you are a terrible spouse in menial or astounding ways, or you are imperfectly faithful, we all find the equal opportunity for forgiveness at Christ's cross. Sometimes even Christians find or put themselves in situations that may make it seem like this passage says you should refrain from marrying again. Maybe so. But in any case, Jesus is the one who will be your eternally satisfying partner no matter what. So whatever your spiritual condition at the moment, believing or unbelieving, and, and then, whether you're married or unmarried, the question is, are you longing for someone who knows you better than you know yourself? Who cares immensely for you and would never turn you away? And offers life to you in full fellowship of communion? Are you looking for that person? Because if so, the person you want is Jesus Christ, who is, for all those who trust in him, the most faithful husband, who came to earth specifically to cleanse his unfaithful bride. He died to buy us back from our sins, and he lives now to intercede for us forever. And He will come back to set the wedding feast, to celebrate our eternity together with Him in His kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we know we struggle at varying capacities to be steadfast in our marriages. Sometimes that means unnoticeable imperfections to the outside world. Sometimes that means we make a complete wreck of our families to the brink of destroying them. Some of us are in between. And so we pray, whatever the case might be, that you would give your people steadfastness in their marriages. That they would commit themselves to being faithful as much as they can be 
to living out their marriage vows and responsibilities. And that they would do so not just for their own betterment, but for the glory of Jesus Christ, who is eternally faithful to His bride, despite our massive unfaithfulness. Remind us, God, every time we fall short here of how exceedingly good our husband is, our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, who will receive us with delight, who gave himself to make us spotless and blameless before him, and who cleanses us with the washing of his word. We pray that, God, you would wash us with your word. Build us up in holiness. Make us better. And give us assurance of who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done for us. We pray these things for his sake. That we might not profane his name among the nations. And in his name, amen.